But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Well, good morning. If you don't know who I am, I'm Jacob. That's all you need to know. Um, all right, so, so some of you know this, some of you don't, but I actually originate from the icy, icy north of the great state of Michigan. So I am officially, and I'm formerly a Michigander. And as a Michigander, I am obligated in some form or shape to cheer for the Detroit Lions football team. <laughs> now, if you know nothing about sports, let me tell you one thing about the Detroit Lions, that they have been notoriously bad for years. Uh, for example, in 2008, this is the Detroit Lions were the first team to ever lose 16 games in one season. And there were 16 games that they played. Um, so that's not exactly a place in history that any team wants to have. But this season is different, if you guys follow the news. Because last weekend, the Detroit Lions won a playoff game for the first time in 32 years. So, so it, it was amazing. People were sobbing. Uh, my Facebook feed was just full of people making comments like, I've waited my entire life for this. And it was a little pathetic, but it's also beautiful at the same time. Um, it, it, was, it was fun. I, I was able to watch parts of the game. I had fun watching it because it, it was really cool just watching the crowd at the game, just their different reactions. You know, they were feeling it so much about the, the touchdowns and the penalties, and it was just it was a lot. Emotional roller coaster. But as, as I was watching the game, they kept, the cameras kept flicking to one person in particular, and I was struck by this one fan um, that they would periodically go to. It was, a, it was an older gentleman. And the reason that they kept flicking to him was that this man has been a Detroit Lions season ticket holder for 60 years, which means that this man has seen a lot of bad football. <laughs> like, <laughs> he paid a lot for bad tickets. But, but I, I was struck by this man's story because this man has been faithful to this team, that he has been there for all of the terrible, terrible seasons. That he stuck with this team year after year. That he's clearly devoted to the Lions. In this, in, this, in this passage this morning that we read, we are given a call strong to faith. Now, not a call to faith to a football team, not to an organization, but we are given a call to put our faith in Jesus, who, unlike the Lions, will never let us down. We are called to make this confession of faith to God, and then we're called to hold fast to this confession. But what this passage reminds us of is that this confession doesn't happen by accident. 
That a strong faith doesn't grow out of passivity. That instead, a strong faith is a result of action. Our takeaway truth this morning is a strong faith in Jesus is not an accident, but a result of action. So what I want to do to help us kind of grasp this concept and understand why it impacts our lives is we're going to use some different action verbs. So what we're going to, we're going to do is we're going to have three sets of two different verbs. We're going to see that a strong confession of faith comes by taking and making. We're going to see that it comes by fleeing and pursuing. And then we'll finish off with fighting and keeping. So first, a strong faith comes by taking and making. Now, if, if you're following along with our text and reading through it, you'll notice why I'm using action verbs to structure our outline. Because our passage is packed full of action verbs. All six verbs that are used in our outline are actually featured and come directly from our passage. But if, but if you're following along, if you're reading it, you may wonder why we start with the word take. Because the word take comes after three different action verbs that come before it. Well, the reason that we start with take is that because without that action, the rest are impossible. That, and let, let me explain that for a second. Verse 12 says, or calls us to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. What are we called to take hold of? Eternal faith, or eternal life, I'm sorry. Now, eternal life feels like a very abstract concept to us because our current lives are extremely temporal and definitely temporal. As, as best as we can, we plan our lives according to time. Uh, some of us really strive to do well to make five-year plans. Uh, sometimes we think of, like, I want my dream job by age blank. I want to have traveled to X amount of countries by this time. We want to have kids when we turn. We want, I want to retire by, we, you get the picture. So in a sense, we have trouble kind of wrapping our minds around this concept of eternal life. Because how do you plan for eternity? I mean, what will we do after 400 years? I mean, won't we get bored after a while? <laughs> Don't get ahead of me. But this eternal life, which we're called to take hold of, is not as life as it is now. That the life that we're called to take hold of is not just life that we're living, but kind of an extended version of it. We're not being sent, we're not being sent on a journey to find the Holy Grail or the fountain of youth. This eternal life is a life in heaven, which is a life that is greater than our lives in every single way. The Bible doesn't give us a full kind of on description of what eternal life in heaven will look like. We would like that, but we're not given. Well, we are given some snapshots. And the, the snapshot of eternity, which the Bible gives us, is nothing short of extraordinary. Heaven itself is described as this immaculate city. It's a city that's made of priceless jewels, of pure gold, pearls, jasper, sapphires, onyx. It's said that the river of life runs right through the city and that the tree of life stands there and it gives different fruits in every different season. In heaven, there's no darkness, there's no brokenness. Revelation 21 verse 4 describes how death will be no more, how there will be no mourning, there will be no sadness. 
There will be no pain as pain will be turned into comfort and our crying will be turned to rejoicing. And I love the reason why, because God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Scripture goes on to say that the people of God will feast at God's table, that they will dwell in the house, this this mansion of the Lord where a room has been prepared specifically for them, that they will be given new clothes and that there will be crowns placed upon their heads. And we, these people of God, will enjoy paradise forever. And God himself will be sitting at the center of it all. He'll be sitting on a throne, welcoming people into his everlasting kingdom. And what an entrance that will be. That as someone walks through those pearly gates, that the trumpets will blast The angels will be shouting for joy, and God himself will be welcoming in uh, his people as sons and as daughters. Christians will finally be home. We can't truly fathom what a life in heaven will be and how great heaven will be. It's greater than we can imagine. In 1 Timothy 6.12, we are called to, to grab hold of this eternal life, to claim entrance into heaven. But there's a problem, in that we can't afford the entrance fee. Because the price to enter heaven is perfect obedience to the law of God. And we fall so far short of that requirement. Because we are sinners. We are lawbreakers, rebels who have pitted ourselves against our God so that we are not worthy to enter into heaven. Instead, we are deserving of a punishment and the, the righteous judgment of God, which means that we are destined for the pit, not for those heaven's gates. On our own, we are unable to grab hold of that eternal life because it's always going to be beyond our grasp. But the message of Christianity is not one of despair, but it's one of joy. Because the God of the Bible is a God of mercy and compassion. God knows our sin. He sees our brokenness, and yet he chose to show his people grace and mercy, which meant that he took on human flesh, which meant he was born as a baby. He lived a fully human life to eventually give up his life for his people. Part of that human experience is actually referenced here in 1 Timothy 6, as Pontius Pilate is mentioned. After Jesus has been arrested and questioned by the Jewish religious leaders, in this sort of a joke of a trial, he's taken to Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman governor of the region. And these Jewish leaders, they desperately wanted to kill Jesus because they so hated him. 
but they didn't, they didn't have this proper authority to do so. So they took him to Pilate, who did have this authority to kill. Now already by this point, Jesus has been betrayed by one of his disciples. The others have deserted him when he was arrested. He's been falsely accused of crimes that he didn't commit. He's been spit on, he's been mocked, he's been beaten, and he didn't deserve any of it. And now he's at the governor's house. He's tied up. He's surrounded by this mob of people screaming falsities about him, demanding that he be executed for crimes he didn't commit. And then Pilate asks him this, this simple question, are you the king of the Jews? This is a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus, because this is a moment when Jesus could have said enough. This is a moment when Jesus could have just simply freed himself from the ropes. He could have called down his angels and just commanded them to spite or to smite all of these people who were attacking him. Because Jesus knew what would happen if he answered Pilate's question. But Jesus didn't deny himself here. He, rather, he said, you have said so. And Jesus wasn't, it wasn't long after that Jesus was crucified. What Jesus did was he made the good confession that he is Lord. That he's not only the king of the Jews, but he is king of the whole world. While Peter was busy denying even knowing Jesus, Jesus was not denying his true identity, even though it would lead to the cross on Calvary. Jesus did this because of his great love for us, so that we can have eternal life in heaven with God. Many of you are familiar with the name John Calvin, and he once wrote in this kind of idea that God's Son stood trial before a mortal man and suffered accusation and condemnation that we might stand without fear in the presence of God. Jesus confessed that he is Lord, and we are called in 1 Timothy 6 to make the same confession that Jesus is Lord. And making that good confession is the way that we grab hold of that eternal life. By confessing that I am a sinner in need of salvation, and that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who died to take my punishment. We're called to say that confession, and then we're called to believe that death did not hold him. That on that glorious, wonderful Sunday morning, Jesus was victorious over sin and death as he came out of the grave. If I make that confession that Jesus is Lord, eternal life in heaven is my future. And we say that with confidence because of verses like Romans 10 Nine, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But I want us to notice that this confession is never meant to stay as a private confession. We are called to confess this with other people. This Christ, the Christian journey is never meant to be a solo adventure 
but it's to be lived out in the context of the church with other Christians. Timothy himself made this confession in the presence of many witnesses and many believers, and we're meant to do the same. Here at Covenant Church, this is part of our membership process, in that we ask you to make a public confession of faith in front of the church body. And the point isn't to embarrass you or to make you just cower in your shoes, but it's to serve as an outward sign of the inward confession that you've made. And it's a beautiful thing because it actually reminds the rest of us as well that we are called to hold one another accountable. That we're called to remind each other of the confession that we have made and to live the life that Christ has called us to live. So my question for us this morning, friend, is have you made that good confession? Have you asked Christ to free you from the pit and to give you the gift of eternal life in paradise? Because if, if you have not done that, now is the moment. Don't linger. Because the gates of heaven are wide open to all the nations of the world, and the King of kings is calling us from his throne. This king who alone has immortality, who dwells in this glorious, unapproachable light, we are called to answer his call, to take hold of that eternal life before it's too late. So I, call, I urge you to put your faith and trust in him. So a strong faith begins by taking in it to and making. Second, a strong faith comes by fleeing and pursuing. Verse 11 says, But as for you, O man, flee, o man of God, flee these things. Now, first to clarify, this verse is refer, speaking to all men and women of God. And there are certain Christian circles which will kind of strictly use this term, man of God, for their pastor, uh, but that's not what Paul has in mind here. We, you know, Timothy was a pastor, but at this point, he was speaking to Timothy without church office in mind. Now, if you are a, so which means if you are a follower of God, this verse is a command, is an imperative for you. And this command is for us to flee, to run, to escape from something. This is intentional. No one accidentally flees. Fleeing is a result of seeing danger and then deliberately running away from it. The, the dangers that us as Christians are called to run from are actually mentioned in the verses that were leading up to what we read this morning, so we didn't read them. But these dangers include false teachings that contradict the word of God, envy, dis dissension, a craving for controversy, slander, and a love of money, which is called the root of all kinds of evil. Fellow sinners, we all know how easy, these, how easy it is to fall into these sorts of traps. I mean, how often, and how, how, how often do we get envious of that individual, that couple, that family who just seems to have everything put together? How often do we find ourselves losing control of our tongues and talking badly about other people, especially when other people are doing the same? And how many of us have fallen into sin in the pursuit of wealth and comfort. We don't need to be featured in an episode of 2020 to know 
that we are guilty of the love of money. Each of us struggle with different sins. Some of that list may not, be, may, may not particularly be a struggle for you, but what Paul is exhorting his audience here to do in chapter 6 applies to every sin temptation, and the call is to flee, to run, to remove yourself from all temptations. Like, like we heard about last week with the life of Joseph, we are to imitate him as he literally fled the house when Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce him. Fleeing sin is not a form of surrender. Fleeing from sin is actually a sign of spiritual maturity and wisdom. And we are not to meant to run away aimlessly, but instead we're, our flight is to turn into pursuit. The second half of verse 11 gives us a, a, a list that very much resembles the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And these are things that we're supposed to pursue after, to chase, to seek. And this list includes righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And now we don't, we don't have time to work through all of this list at this time. We could easily spend our whole time this morning talking about that list. But I do want to highlight three as just to kind of give us a, a taste. So I want to start with righteousness. And, and I love how R.C. Sproul simply defined this because it's, it's just, it is what it is. Righteousness is doing what is right in the sight of God. To be righteous is to do everything that God calls us to do. Pretty straightforward. But an important important question for us to ask as we are seeking to pursue righteousness is, do I know what God has called me to do? Do I know the way of the Lord? Do I know what is right in the sight of God? A wonderful thing about Christianity is that we don't have to wonder what is right in God's eyes, because he's plainly told us in his word. So the way that we pursue righteousness is by being students of God, by being students of his word. And then we can't miss this part, though. Then we need to do what it says. Another one I want to highlight from this list is godliness. Now, there is a very close connection between righteousness and godliness, while righteousness is, is focused on us doing the right things, godliness ensures that our hearts are doing these right things for the right reasons. Righteousness without godliness is just a description of legalism. Godliness is this process of our wills and our hearts and our desires and our thoughts being conformed to the mind and heart of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. The point of godliness is not to become a god. We'll never become god, and never should we desire to be one. But as we walk with God and serve him, we will eventually become more and more like him. Because what's happening is we are being molded more into the image of Christ. Now, I think an honest question for us in terms of godliness, because it's easy to get caught up in these kind of these terms and ideas, is how do I know if I'm growing in godliness? Like, is, is there a like, how do, how do I actually know? And I think a way we could kind of help us understand this is a, kind of a simple little test to help us evaluate. What I think we need to do is we need to ask ourselves, when I'm a- interacting with other people, do they see Christ through me? Do my actions and my words represent Christ well? 
And this is where the test really comes in handy. In my heart of hearts, do I want people to see Christ through me? Or am I more interested in them praising me? Ultimately, the only ones who can answer that question are you and God. But if I'm truly growing in godliness, my mindset, my heart's going to be more of Christ and less of me. This le- I want to highlight one more pursuit item from this list before we move on, and that's gentleness. Now, for many of us, especially men, gentleness is just understood as a synonym for weakness. But that is a major, major misunderstanding because it takes an incredible amount of strength to be gentle. For example, when my kids are screaming at me, it takes a lot more strength to respond in gentleness than yelling. It takes strength to be gentle. And I think it's very noteworthy that the strongest man of all, Jesus Christ, even described himself as gentle. Many of you know Matthew 11, 20, and 29. This is, Come to me, all who, are la- who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my, burden, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. An application question for us on this, term, this idea of gentleness is, am I pursuing gentleness? And I want us as guys to really think about that one well. It's not a mistake that gentleness is included in this list or in Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. So we must not be tempted to neglect this one. We are called to be gentle. So, so in our study of what, takes a, what makes a strong faith, we've identified that it involves taking and it t- means making. We've seen that it involves fleeing and pursuing, but I have one more pairing for us. Lastly, a strong faith comes by fighting and by keeping. Probably the the most well-known verse from this this section is verse 12, which says, fights the good fight of the faith. And And I love Paul, as he often did, he uses imagery that his audience would well understand. And in this case, he's using fighting and warfare and soldiers. So why, so why does he use fighting and soldiers in this, in this case? Well, because we are engaged in a twofold battle in this lifetime. We're involved in a, a battle against Satan, who is called the destroyer. And we're also involved in a battle against our sinful nature. And we, both, we all know that both are difficult battles that we're in. First, I want to focus in on this war against Satan. Now, to Satan's delight, culture and society have been misrepresenting him for years. The Bible never teaches that Satan is a little red guy with horns and a little tail and a pitchfork and say, I'm going to get you. That's not the picture of Satan. Satan is an enemy who must not be taken lightly. Scripture describes him as a lion who's roaming the earth seeking to destroy and devour. He often disguises himself as an angel of light. He is called the deceiver. And it's very clear from Scripture that he does possess a certain level of power. He hates God, and anyone who follows after Christ is his enemy, which means that if I'm a follower of Christ, 
Satan will attempt to attack me in all sorts of ways. We see this most clearly exemplified in the book of Job, um, when Satan, he killed Job's children, he killed his livestock, he destroyed his property. So are we to fear Satan, though? Are we to fear the spiritual enemy who so hates us and wants to destroy us? And what 1 Timothy 6 is teaching us, though, is that, no, we aren't supposed to fear him because this is an enemy who has already been defeated. That this enemy's head has been crushed by Jesus. His fate has been sealed. Satan is not the Lord of hell. He is one who is going there himself. Which means, though, that even though Satan may afflict us, even though he may discourage us, he may even torture us, there is nothing that he can do which will take us for out of the hand of God. The, the writer of It Is Well With My Soul, Horatio Spafford, he famously wrote about this as he was going through life situations which were very similar to those of Job. If you want to hear a tear-jerking tear story, look up his, his life. But in, in that song, which many of us have just clung to over periods of our lives, uh, that second verse he went, said this, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Friends, Satan can do many things, but he cannot undo what the love and blood of Jesus has accomplished. We have this battle against Satan, but we also have another battle, and that's in this lifetime, that's the battle against our own worldly desires, our own sinful natures. Through the work of Christ, we have been brought from death to life, and we're being sanctified through the Holy Spirit so that we are being molded more into the image of Christ. But, but on this side of heaven, none of us will ever be perfect. We will all continue to struggle with sin. Which means that if you meet someone in your life who says that they no longer sin, congratulations, you've met a liar. <laughs> we all will struggle with sin until the day that we die. Which is why Paul calls us to fight. We are called to put on the armor of God, which is used to fight the schemes of the devil but it's also to fight the schemes of our own sinful nature. Our old temptations, our old sin patterns will not go down without a fight. So if we want to truly live for Christ, if we want to honor him, we will need to be intentional by putting on that full armor of God. And that, that, arm, that leads us right into the charge that is given to us in verses 13 and 14. Those verses say, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how does this connect with putting on the full armor of God? Well, what we're being called to do is we're called to keep and to defend the word of God, which, that, which means that we must be willing to defend orthodoxy, to defend right doctrine, and not allowing false teachings to work their way into our church. 
We are also called to be, we must be willing to stand up for this truth, even if the rest of the world opposes us for it. We're also to defend and keep the commandment unstained by living according to the way that the Word teaches. There's a strong call here and an exhortation to, to live in a way that we don't stain God's words, God's Word in the eyes of non-Christians. Non-Christians may disagree with what we are teaching and saying. They may even hate us for what we say. Jesus warned us of that, and they will hate us. But we should do our best to make it nearly impossible for them to hate us by the way that we live and by the way that we obey the teachings of Christ, by the way that we demonstrate our faith. This morning we talked a lot about intentionality and the, and the activeness that is involved in developing a strong faith. And I'm sure that some of us feel pretty convicted and maybe even discouraged if our faith feels weak. But, but let me leave us with a kind of a final reminder that Christ loves us and he has succeeded in what we have failed in. Because God's word says that his grace is sufficient for me. And now that Jesus, after having won, succeeded where we failed, he's waiting for us in heaven so that someday we will see him face to face. And on that day, our faith, which may be entirely weak at some moments, will be turned into sight. Let me pray for us. Gracious Lord, we are in awe of what you have done for us, and we ask that you help us to grab hold of the eternal life that you have promised and you offer to us, Lord. Give us strong faith, help us to be molded and grow in godliness, and help us to never grow tired and weary of sharing the good news with those around us. And all these things we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.